Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world. Thanksgiving officially kicks off the holiday season, a time when many of us are focused on food. This week, we revisit conversations that offer a little perspective and personal reflection on how our beliefs influence the way we see food and how the rituals we create bring us together. We don't have a turkey on our table to celebrate Thanksgiving. It's going to be a classic kind of Indian meal. It's all vegetarian, probably minimal use of garlic and onion because she does like to try to keep things Jane. That's Dr. Shikhar Shah describing how his family's religious beliefs inform their holiday menu to adhere to their Jane diet. It's vegetarian and they follow a utilitarian philosophy. Now, this is a time when we're not only thinking about ourselves and nourishing our families. The holidays are often when many of us look for ways to ensure that our neighbors have enough to eat. This spirit doesn't need to be in churches or gurdwaras or temples. It needs to be on the streets where the need is. So we came up with the idea that to buy a food truck and just go to Skid Row, just go to homeless encampments and serve them where they are. That's Ravinder Singh from Los Angeles. He and his wife launched a new way of preparing and delivering free meals as a form of selfless service, or seva. That's a core principle in the Sikh faith. When I think of food and faith, I often think about restrictions and dietary boundaries. But to Lake Forest College professor Ben Zeller, there is much more to see. It doesn't necessarily have to do with dogmas or with catechisms. Rather, religion is practiced and it's done by people and it's how they're raised in their families and their communities. And when you look at food, it allows us to bring that into focus. In 2014, Zeller invited religious studies professors from around the country to share essays, exploring the meaning of food through that religious lens. The result is a fascinating anthology that looks at religion, food, and eating in North America. His interest in this area traces back to early in his career, just after graduate school, when he was asked to teach a comparative religion class. My department chair said, Ben, we have a comparative religion class I need you to teach. And I was always really hesitant of comparative religion because you end up comparing through one particular lens. I mean, so I I remember someone used to teach a class on ideas of of the soul. And that's such Christian language. So everything comes out sort of being compared against Christianity. So I tried to think, what is one thing that all religions have in common that I can use to compare, but that wouldn't make every other religion look like sort of a pale imitation of one of them? And I thought, well, everyone eats. So I structured my class around religion and food because that's a way in which I could really help students look at at, at the world's broad religious traditions without necessarily enforcing a comparison uh, using some sort of a concept like soul or heaven or sin or something like that. So what did you learn and how did food really figure into that as you started to look into it closer? I think one of the 
important things we, we learn when we study religion and food or religion through the angle of food is we learn to recenter religiosity out of formal institutions and out of texts and out of the people who are famous and write books and into the everyday experiences and homes and on the street uh, of, of lived religion, which is sort of the way in which religion is lived out. And it doesn't necessarily have to do with dogmas or with catechisms or with you know the, these uh, statements of faith. Rather, religion is is practiced, and it's it's done by people, and it's how they're raised in their families and their communities. And when you look at food, it allows us to bring that into focus. Uh, food is, on the one hand, and eating is a highly individual act. For most of us, we can do it ourselves. But on the other hand, almost every culture values the idea of eating together. So the way in which religions uh, bring people together and often put food rituals at the center of that, whether those are feasts or fasts or food offerings. Uh, we see it across traditions. What can we learn about a religion by looking at its food traditions? Food is a great lens into understanding how a religion teaches and practices about the body in particular, because eating is an embodied act. It's something which you have to, by definition, Use your body, and in fact, you're putting something into your body. Uh, by looking at what a religion says about eating, you can get a lot about what it says about the, how it feels about the body. Uh, so, for example, a Christian tradition has tended to emphasize fasting practices because there's been an ambivalence about the body within Christian tradition. The body is seen not necessarily as a way to achieve spiritual closeness to the divine, but as an impediment, something to be controlled. Contrast that with, for example, neo-pagan Wiccan practices today, which tend to have a very body-positive approach and really don't emphasize fasting and much more emphasize feasting as a way to, to have a spiritual practice. But, you know, more broadly, the way in which food and eating helps define us in relationship to the, to the world around us, what we do and don't eat, with whom we do and don't eat. And if you look at their food practices, it helps show what does that religion say about the religion relationship of the individual to the humans around them, to the communities around them, to the broader world around them of living creatures. Who you can and cannot share food with defines your community. It defines family. If you can sit and share a meal with someone, then they are, are a person you can be in a relationship with. And if you cannot share food with them, for one reason or another, perhaps because of religious food regulations or perhaps because of a personal food practice that you follow, it is very difficult to have a relationship with that person. And we see in terms of religious history the way this works out. Maybe the best example of this is the way in which among American Jews in the last hundred years, there was a decrease in the practice of, of kashrut, of kosher following. And that was very explicitly done because many American Jews wanted to assimilate. And when your neighbor comes over and says, you know, we'd like to invite you to, to our house to eat. And if you keep kosher, you follow the Jewish food laws, you have two choices. You can either say, yes, we're going to do that and we're not going to follow kosher. 
or you're going to say, no, we have to decline because of our food loss. So either you assimilate, you form sort of a relationship with those hypothetical neighbors, or you don't. And food is central to that. As you know, we're approaching the time of year in which we're going to be focusing on on both feasting and thinking about gathering and how we come together. When we think about Thanksgiving in particular, do you think of that through a religious lens? Is that a religious holiday from your perspective? Yeah, there's no doubt that the American Thanksgiving has its roots in religion and that religion is still present in uh, just beneath the surface in many ways. So I think any of us who are the product of American public schooling probably know the story that the, the myth of Thanksgiving as it's been taught with the pilgrims and such and that 17th century meal. There are historic Thanksgivings that go back to the 17th century to the pilgrims and the Puritans, and they are religious feasts. The Thanksgiving Day was a day that was called uh, usually in response to something really good, which had happened, winning a war, a successful harvest, uh, elections. And it was a way to bring the community together for worship, for prayer, for reflection. And it did usually end in communal uh, or family meals, depending on the time period. And that is the historic root of our Thanksgiving. And then in the 19th century, Abraham Lincoln famously proclaimed sort of this national Thanksgiving in 1863 during the height of the Civil War as a way to thank God for the success the Union Army had achieved in, in, in the war and to pray for, for guidance and the strength to get through the war. And it was explicitly a religious proclamation. Now, today, of course, if you were going to go to a Thanksgiving meal, you may not necessarily find the religion on the surface. But what I find interesting is it is so highly ritualized. Everyone knows what they expect for a Thanksgiving, down to the, the, the food. And while there are some exceptions and room for innovation, by and large, it is so ritualized is the only word I can think of that that it shows the way in which it emerged out of those patterns, which 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 came out of religious tradition. Today, though, it has become something that cuts across traditions. It's not, I don't think, recognized per se as a Christian religious tradition as much as it is seen as a part of our quote unquote civil religion. Can you tell me how did Thanksgiving become a civil holiday? So in the late 19th, early 20th century, as American sort of national identity was coming together through print culture and then in the 20th century through radio and television, there was an effort to craft sort of a civic nationhood through holidays. And Thanksgiving was one of the ways that that happened. Before that, it had been a regional holiday. It had been popular in New England. And particularly in the wake of the Civil War and the disunity that brought, there was an effort by, particularly there were some, uh, some women's magazines that offered sort of shared national recipes people could use, but also the presidential proclamations that, that called it a national holiday. So it was, it was quite explicit during the area of Reconstruction. And then in the early 20th century, it became highly commercialized. So the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade is sort of maybe the, the best emblem of that. The way in which Thanksgiving became tied to sort of this national spirit, but also the way in which it became a holiday of consumption. You bought lots of food and you ate lots of food. It inaugurated this entire season of holidays of consumption. And this was very much a Victorian sort of uh, construction of holidays. The same thing happens with Christmas as well around the same time period. I mean, I, I have to confess, when you describe that, I start to think of the era around Mad Men and, and creating yeah. kind of an ethos or an idea with an ad campaign. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah and, and it was an attempt to craft sort of a national identity and a recognition that everyone 
eats and you can use feasting as a way to bring people together. I, I think also part of it has to do with this nostalgia. If you think about the stories we tell about Thanksgiving, it's very telling to me that we only narrate the myth of the white immigrants and the Native Americans coming together after Native Americans have been expelled and removed and pushed off literally to reservations. Only when they're, when, when Native Americans are, are themselves mythic to many other Euro-Americans do we inquire incorporate them into the myth of Thanksgiving. Only when Puritans are safely in the background, no longer burning witches, do they become part of sort of this nostalgic memory. I think it's also very telling that Thanksgiving, with all of its harvest imagery, becomes particularly powerful at the exact same time that most Americans begin living in cities. I think it was the 1900 census, which was the first time that there were more Americans living in urbanized areas than rural areas. It might be the 1910. Uh, But that's right around when Thanksgiving is really taking off. Really telling, right? Sort of this harvest festival when suddenly most of us are living in cities. The way in which this regional holiday that comes out of this, this New England experience becomes nationalized, particularly during a moment of immigration, the great age of immigration from the 1870s through 19-teens, when there were all these fears that these new immigrants were going to overwhelm American culture with their own immigrant experience, and the way in which Thanksgiving is then marketed as a way to become American, and the way in which it really succeeds. So by, by the late 20th century, early 21st century, you have people from a wide variety of backgrounds all eating like how we imagine a bunch of English immigrants from the early 17th <laughs> century were eating at Plymouth Rock in Massachusetts. Can you tell me what was the original Thanksgiving meal and how has it evolved? Well, the original Thanksgiving meal, by that we mean that 1621 Thanksgiving meal uh, in Plymouth among the pilgrims uh, the Native American community. First of all, there was no written menu, so we can't just say this is what they ate. But from what we can figure out, seafood was actually uh, one of the main courses. That's because, of course, they lived by the seashore, and that was a plentiful food. So eel was very popular, uh, the alewife, a small fish, oysters, uh, depending on the season, uh, lobsters, crab, all of those were central. Waterfowl, so ducks and geese, occasionally turkey as well. We don't think there was necessarily turkey at that first Thanksgiving, but that might have been present. Certainly deer, venison, and corn. Corn was definitely present as well, most likely in sort of a mush form. How is it the Thanksgiving meal became associated with some very specific staples like turkey? Cookbooks. The answer is cookbooks, actually. In the late 19th, early 20th century, there was an effort to uh, to create a national cuisine. Some of this was done very explicitly. Many of the cookbooks that were produced in the late 19th, early 20th century included details about how to create uh, American-style festival meals, including Thanksgiving, and they would have indicated what you should cook. Because Thanksgiving was constructed during an era of fear of immigration and fear of immigrants, and it was this melting pot ideology that immigrants would melt down their identities, this fondue of Americanness, that instead of, of, of the image of Thanksgiving being everyone bring their own traditions, it was, this is the American way to be. But I had a student who told me once in religion and food class, she was a student from, she was Indian from South Asian, and she told me they had Indian food at their Thanksgiving because that's what their family liked. They didn't like stuffing and, and, and turkey and things like that. And my Anglo-American students around the table looked at her with their jaws dropped <laughs> when they heard that their classmate had um, sag paneer for Thanksgiving. One thing that I just want to lift up is 
the idea of creating this mythical holiday table happened at the end of the Civil War. How did the African-American community fit into the story of Thanksgiving and into the mythical table of who gets to be an American and what we eat and celebrate? Thanksgiving has a really complicated racial ethnic history because it was originally intended as a celebration of Euro-American immigration uh, and colonization, but particularly also because its more recent history was tied so closely to Lincoln and then to Reconstruction. It actually was not a particularly popular holiday during Reconstruction among white Southerners. It was seen as, as imposed, and it actually only became popular really regionally in the South after the end of Reconstruction proper, when, when often it took on very ugly racial connections as well because of that sort of that, that white history to it. Uh, but among African Americans, you really see Thanksgiving taking off in, in the North, particularly after the Great Migration, because Thanksgiving is also tied to the idea of hearth and home and family. It was a way in which African Americans who had moved North during the Great Migration could reconnect to sort of their remembered or imagined foodways from the South. So the way in which then traditional sort of Southern African American foods get centered on the Thanksgiving table, not because anyone thought that the pilgrims were eating them, but because this was associated with family and with tradition. But again, it's highly complicated because of sort of the racial ethnic background of the holiday. I, I did have a student once who was of uh, Native American heritage who told me flatly that he didn't celebrate Thanksgiving. And the student didn't want to talk too much about it, but I inferred it's because of the ugly history of Euro-American colonization. So yeah, I think that Thanksgiving is a highly complicated holiday. That was Benjamin Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College. He's a co-editor of Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. Coming up after the break, can eating certain foods be considered an act of violence for people following their faith? The answer is, well, yes. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show.
Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan, and this is Inspired. This week, we're exploring food and faith and what it says about who we are and what we believe. Just before the break, we heard from Benjamin Zeller, an associate professor of religion at Lake Forest College. He shared how meals that accompany feasting holidays like Thanksgiving can be different and at times difficult for some Americans, including those who are vegetarian and vegan. I was vegetarian for uh, for many years. It's amazing how much at that holiday to not eat the quote-unquote proper food is an affront. It's a threat in some ways. We used to make, and we still make actually, a uh, sort of a nut and cheese loaf, which is wonderful. You could tell people were very uncomfortable about innovating with this new food. And the fact that some of us were choosing to eat it instead of turkey was particularly, I think, what was threatening. If it was just a side dish, a new side dish, people just would have looked at it. But the fact that this was presented as a bona fide replacement for the tradition was seen as affronting. Eating is one of the ways in which we define our identities. If I see someone else rejecting my eating and uphold some other food way as being a central way to be, that can be very threatening, perhaps almost as much so as diversity or pluralism of religion can be threatening to some people. And in the same way in which if, if religious identity is so central to many people, to see that someone else has such a radically different religious identity, which is not mine. Vegetarianism and veganism are not religions per se, but Zeller found that for some people, Changing their eating habits to abstain from meat or other animal products can resemble deeply meaningful religious experiences. He says these decisions should be taken seriously by others. So I did a study of vegetarians, vegans, and locavores. So locavores are people who choose to eat only food produced in whatever they're defining as their local region. I went into it thinking, well, this is a great way to sort of think about sort of food ways on the ground. What I discovered among these people that I spoke with, these oral histories which were produced, and they were actually conversion narratives. When I asked people who had become vegans or vegetarians or locavores, to tell their story about why they made these choices. What they told me were conversion narratives. And the conversion narratives took very typical form. Some of them were the very passive sort of conversions which religious study scholars associate with the uh, the image of of Paul, you know, the, from, from the Christian New Testament, Paul on the road to Damascus, sort of struck down by sort of this external power where suddenly he feels like he has to have his conversion. So some vegans in particular, vegetarians, would describe sort of these moments where they encountered something outside of themselves, which forced them to radically change their food ways, their food practices. The one which really I so vividly remember even uh, a decade and a half later was a person who told me that they had gone to visit a slaughterhouse on a class field trip in high school. And as they stood in the slaughterhouse looking at the animals hanging upside down with the blood dripping and the viscera on the floor and the, and, and the animals being cut up and packaged and coming out the other end as meat to be eaten, this person felt as if they were so struck down by this, they would never eat meat again. The idea of a powerful experience, either one which happens to you or you you do to yourself, is shared among many people who choose to change their food practices or food ways. And that makes sense because it is a conversion in certain ways. Most of the people Zeller interviewed for this study were non-religious. Their food choices, though meaningful, were not dictated explicitly by religious belief. 
but a vegetarian diet is a significant part of the religious beliefs of Jains. Jainism is an ancient, non-theistic religion whose practitioners mainly reside in India, though it's unclear what the global population is. There are 4.2 million Jains living in India. Now, while its origins are obscure and it has no clear founder or founding date, Jainism does have sacred texts. The tradition encourages Jains to live according to certain principles in order to liberate their souls from the cycle of reincarnation so they can achieve eternal bliss. As part of their spiritual practice, Jains do not eat meat, animal fats, gelatin, eggs, honey, or root vegetables. Zeller says this is connected to the Jain concept of ahimsa, or nonviolence. The way in which what we eat is an ethical act, and by choosing not to eat other living creatures, it's it's the way in which eating is how we define our relationship with people around us, and with with not just people, with other living creatures. And that fits within uh, Jain theology. Our next guest, a Jain himself, feels the tradition's food restrictions are about mindful eating and letting oneself focus on the more important things in life. It's the idea of eating to live and not living to eat. In our society, it's really easy to think of food as a pleasure and a pastime, and it is. And it can be enjoyable, and it should be. But it shouldn't be the focus. Mm. You know, eat healthily and then be done with your meal. Don't be don't be sitting in bed eating bags of chips. Um, and Jainism says the same thing. It says be thoughtful about what you're doing, do it, and then when you're done, move on. That's Shikhar Shah. He's an anesthesiologist at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And he's a member of Young Jains of America. I spoke with Shah in our studio about his Jain upbringing and how that's informed his personal relationship to food and consumption. Shah started by clearing up one common misconception, that Jainism is part of Hinduism. The, the two get conflated so frequently because Hinduism's a much more common religion and, you know, most Jains and most Hindus are Indian. Jainism is, is you know, definitely not Hinduism. They are different religions and kind of one of the key existential differences between the two is that Hinduism is definitely a polytheistic religion, even pantheistic, depending on how you define it. Whereas Jainism doesn't have a god that you pray to. It's You could argue it's atheistic or non-theistic. We pray, but our prayers are to... Stepping back, you know, Jainism believes everyone has a soul, and the goal of Jainism is to be liberated from the cycle of birth and death, not too dissimilar from Buddhism. And so when we pray, our prayers are to the souls that have liberated themselves. We're not asking them to intervene in our prayers. We're more meditating and reflecting on their qualities in the hope that we can one day be like these liberated souls. And I just want to clarify, when you describe the embodiment of a soul, do you see that soul force in food? Yeah, excellent question. Jainism believes, you know, in reincarnation. It's this idea that when you die, you can be reincarnated as a human or as an ant or as a cow or as an apple. And so we see every living thing and living thing is defined phenomenally broadly as having a soul. How does the Jain tradition teach about food and nourishment? Jainism does have a lot of, you know, rules and regulations when it comes to food, and it's easy to get bogged down in the details. But I think the best way to look at it is to kind of step back and think about what type of philosophy Jainism is preaching globally and then how it applies to food. So Jainism, I think, is a pretty utilitarian religion. It's it's an idea of minimizing harm. Jainism doesn't say you should, you know, put yourself under undue duress necessarily. It says eat what you need to to survive and 
don't do more harm than you need to to live a decent life. Um, and the way that's applied, you know, one of the concepts we'll, we'll talk about is, you know, this idea of nonviolence or ahimsa. Um, and the way Jainism applies that to food is saying, well, there's different gradations of violence you can do when it comes to eating. You could choose to eat an apple or you could choose to eat a cow. And, and killing the cow to eat it does significantly more harm kind of globally to the world. There's, there's more negative utility, if you will, versus eating that apple. And so Jainism in that sense would say, hey, eat, you know, be healthy but try to minimize the harm. If you don't need to eat the cow, if there's no dietary restriction that's forcing you to, to eat something that causes more violence, then don't, and try to minimize that violence you're doing with your food. And so Jainism, while it does deal in relatives, there are also some absolute rules. And what are those? Yeah, and so there's a few foods or a few food items that are called abaksha, that are just like forbidden. And meat, you know, the meat of any animal, whether it's an animal that died naturally or an animal that you slaughtered, is a buck. It's forbidden. So that's that's one of the the major ones. There's a few others. You know, honey is uh, a buck, and that's one that people don't always think about. And it's because over the course of its lifetime, a honeybee produces like a teaspoon of honey. No one's going around eating a teaspoonful of honey. When you get a serving of honey, you're taking the life uh, and labor of what what might be you know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of, of honeybees. It's this idea of trying to minimize violence. Like, did you need that to sweeten your food or could you have used some stevia instead? And so that's another one of those where it's a bucks just because of the, the mass amount of violence it causes, even though we don't think of honeybees as being, you know, as neurologically um, complex creatures as cows, for example. Mm -hmm. There is some idea of scale that's in play there too. A few others are animal byproducts like leather. You know, because you can't really have leather without having killed the animal or procured it from a dead animal in some way. And then, you know, besides the abuction, there's there's a few more alcohols on there. And there's a few activities of daily living that are on there as well that you're not supposed to do. Um, but then another another common topic when we talk about Jainism and the Jain diet is not exactly the abuction, but the, the foods that are, are heavily frowned upon and the foods that you're trying to avoid. And these are the ones that make the popular news, as, as popular as news about Jainism gets, the root vegetables. Ah, yes, like the carrots and the sweet potatoes. And exactly. The yeah. Exactly. Tubers. Anything that grows under the ground. And so those are called gunmul. And those are foods that, as Jains, you're supposed to avoid eating as much as you can. And so the idea, again, we go back to minimizing violence, right? So your question might be, well, what's the difference between a potato and an apple? They're both, you know, neurologically pretty much similar, and I wouldn't argue with you there. The difference is in the potential for life. An apple has a handful of seeds in it, five, ten seeds, and you're not eating the seeds. You can eat your apple, you can plant the seeds. You're not limiting its potential for life. With potatoes and with, you know, carrots and, and all these other root vegetables, onions, there's no seeds. There's no potato seed. The way you grow another potato is you take a potato and you can cut it up into a bunch of chunks and plant each of those chunks and they'll grow into a new potato. So you might argue then, and you know, Jainism does kind of argue that that potato and what you're eating is actually limiting the potential for life. You're, you're kind of killing future generations. What kind of traditions did you, do you practice? Does your family practice here as a Jain this time of year? Yeah, I can tell you we don't have a turkey on our table. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's a buksh. What do you have? My mom's coming over uh, to come celebrate Thanksgiving. My parents are driving in. It's going to be a classic kind of Indian meal. It's all vegetarian. It's going to be, you know, probably minimal use of garlic and onion because she does like to try to keep things Jain. So we've got the chickpea curry. 
we don't have turkey, but it's not like we're lacking in protein in our diet. We mm-hmm. get a lot from our, our chickpeas, our lentils. Um, we usually have some sort of a fresh salad on the table as well. And your spinach and kale is going to give you protein. I only say that kind of foreshadowing the question I always get asked about the giant and the vegetarian diet. Which is? Where do you get your protein from? (laughs) How does being Jane influence your work as a physician? It's too easy. Uh, One of the the earlier sentences in the Hippocratic Oath is do no harm. And one of the key values of Jainism is do no harm. The values line up, they line up pretty nicely. You might wonder about, you know, me talking to patients about their diet and like, do I tell them like, oh, you shouldn't eat meat? And no, because... One of the things about Jainism that's that's true, I think, for a lot of religions is this idea of understanding that everyone's in a different place. You know, Jainism has a Sanskrit word for it. They call it anikantvad, or the multiplicity of viewpoints. It's this idea that just because you look at life through one lens doesn't mean everyone else will. Um, and just because they disagree with you doesn't mean they're wrong. And I think I take that to work with me every day. When I see patients in clinic, if they make life choices that, you know, don't agree with my philosophy but make medically sound sense then I have no role telling them not to do those things. What kept you kind of grounded growing up in an environment where you were faced with, I'm just going to use the word temptation, a lot of temptation because folks were consuming lots of things that you weren't able to. So when I was younger, what kept me grounded was mom said, hey, don't do that. And when you're young enough, you're just like, well, mom said not to. And, you know, she'll get mad. You get older, you start asking questions and you're given answers. And that's satisfying. So when I was a little bit older, when I was hitting middle school, I'd be like, hey, why can't we eat meat? And she might give me an answer similar to the one we were talking about earlier. Uh, you know, we never use the word utilitarian in the explanation, but it was just a, the concept made its way across. And then as I got older, when I started hitting, you know, kind of my philosophical matur- maturity and I wanted to explore things further, I would be out looking at other religions and other texts and trying to find these similarities and realizing, hey, you know, this idea of nonviolence that Jainism might preach to a logical extreme isn't unique. It's something I'm seeing all over the place. And and to get back to your question, the way it kept me from temptation is it was something I was born into, but it's something I eventually came around to accepting and, and kind of fully understanding as I matured. And so it wasn't a temptation. It was something that I made the decision not to do on my own. You grew up here. You grew up in America. You are an American. Have you ever felt conflicted between the values embodied in your religious practice and what American culture tends to emphasize? I think the only big conflict is American culture is defined by American consumerism. That's kind of what our capitalist society is, what makes America, America. And Jainism, like I hinted at earlier, is something that is defined by this utilitarian, you know, sort of minimalistic philosophy. And that was definitely one of the conflicts growing up. And even even one of the conflicts now, There, it's easy to say, well, you know, there's the new iPad out, there's the new X, Y, and Z thing out, and I want it and I want to buy it. But a lot of the Jane tenants acknowledge and recommend non-possessiveness and, and not being greedy and And again, being utilitarian, using as much as you need to to live and then kind of donating the rest or helping the world around you. That was Shikar Shah, an anesthesiologist at the Walter Reed Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. He's also a member of Young Janes of America. Coming up next, we learn about the Sikh tradition of Lungar and how one California husband and wife are taking it on the road. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break.
You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. We're exploring the relationship between food and faith. Many religious traditions, as well as ethical values, emphasize the importance of providing for our neighbors who are less fortunate, particularly making sure they are fed and nourished. Take, for example, the practice in the Sikh faith, known as langar. Which is the free communal food offering and meal. It's open. All people are welcome. Benjamin Zeller, Associate Professor of Religion at Lake Forest College, says Sikhs prepare these meals at their houses of worship, called gurdwaras, and the fare is always vegetarian. But Zeller explains, Sikhs are not vegetarians. That is not a teaching within Sikhism. Yet they actually practice a more restrictive set of food regulations than than in the religion itself, meaning that they intentionally prepare food which can be consumed by Hindus, by Muslims, by Jains, by Buddhists, by Sikhs, by by Christians, by Jews, because it's meant to be open and sort of a common food denominator for all people. I find that a lovely image. And in fact, when I teach religion and food, I always bring my students to the local Gurdwara to talk about that. Because that's really, it's a wonderful image of the way in which one particular religious tradition uses food as a way to welcome the neighbor and to say, well, we're actually, in this case, we're preparing food that everyone can eat and everyone can feel welcome. The Langar tradition dates back to the 1500s, and these meals can grow to impressive sizes, most notably the one held at Sikhism's most historic and notable Gurdwara. In India, at the Golden Temple, which is the spiritual center for the Sikh religion, they serve about 80,000 people every single day, and on the weekend that can get up to 160,000 people. That's Caitlin Yoshiko Kandil, a freelance reporter based in Southern California. So this tradition of langar still continues today. I mean, most gurdwaras in the U.S. and around the world still prepare food um, and distribute it to the poor in their communities. Yoshiko Kandil says these days, some Sikhs are putting a twist on the traditional langar. In a recent piece for NBC News, she featured Ravinder and Jackie Singh. They're really kind and joyful people. An interfaith couple in Los Angeles County who decided to take langar out of the Gurdwara and into the streets using a food truck. What was interesting about what they were doing is that they took this tradition of langar but modernized it. They realized that they weren't reaching all of the homeless people in the city because not everyone could reach the physical building of the Gurdwara. So they decided to put it on wheels, to put it in a food truck, and that way they'd be able to reach more people throughout the city. Ravi Singh says the share a meal program he and Jackie started 10 years ago was in part a response to the growing numbers of homeless people in the county. We used to live in Santa Monica and the homeless people will come through the alleys and will take out the food, whatever is in the trash cans all along. And we used to feel quite, I would say, crummy about it. That's such a wealthy country. There is something amiss in the system that we can't take care of the few that fall through the cracks of the system and they have to go through this. So there was something wrong we felt about it. Uh, me as an immigrant could had such a upward mobility in getting established as far as I've gotten and something wasn't fitting well that this was happening. But Singh says the idea to expand the reach of Langar only came after his family undertook some interfaith exploration. See, Jackie is Christian, 
Ravi is sick. We married and faith was never an issue in our minds. On Christmas Day, I'll go to her church and uh, when she visited India, she'll go to Gurdwaras, which is Sikh churches. And then they face the same questions so many multi-faith families do. What to teach their kids, in this case, son Justin. So comes Justin and he's a little blank slate. So he comes home as a natural curiosity, Dad, what's God? So I looked at Jackie and we kind of rolled our eyes how to explain this huge question. Don't know even we can answer that, but we said, how about Justin? It's something that you experience and it's a very inside experience that you will one day relate to in some way. How about we expose you? One weekend we're going to take you to mom's church and one weekend we're going to go to a Sikh Gurdwaras uh, being managed by American Sikhs and you will experience their way of relating to God and maybe when you grow up, you will figure out your relationship, whichever way it forms, if at all it forms. So lo and behold, when Jackie and Justin will come one weekend over to the Sikh Gurdwara, Jackie got so curious about Langar because there she would see almost 150 people partaking food, setting up the system of serving, and she was very impressed with that and started to compare that that doesn't happen in a church where they just ask for a donation of a dollar or two in a jar and then you get coffees and some muffin or donut. And she was going, this is how it should be. And so she offered to volunteer to help them on that. And then Singh says the family had a chance to visit India's Golden Temple, the one Yoshiko Kandal described earlier. Singh explains the origin behind the huge langar held there, a story about what is called true trade. Langar tradition started back from the first Sikh guru, Guru Nanak. He was a young boy, very spiritual, uh, right from the get-go. And his father was a retail grocer in the little township or village. That area is nowadays in Pakistan, but then India. So he was asked by his father to go and get some wholesale from the next door town and gave him 20 rupees to go do a trade. Along the way, as he got out of the town, there were some monks hanging out there and they said, we're just out here in the town and we were just hanging in. If we could get served by somebody, he goes, come over to my place and I'll serve you. And they said, oh, no, 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 we don't go begging on people's doors. It's God's gift. If it has to happen, it will happen here. So he used that 20 rupees and served them. And obviously, when he got home, he got scolded by his father that I sent him to do a trade. And what did you end up doing? And he responded that I did the true trade. In other words, I was gifted this. Nothing belongs to me. I just passed it on where the need was. And they were God's people, and I happened to be blessed with God's money, and I just did the true trade. Singh says the tradition of serving this meal was later institutionalized by the guru at his commune. There, his followers would serve pilgrims, travelers, and those who were hungry, regardless of religion, race, caste, or other characteristics. That tradition got set up at that time. The following six gurus carried it to the point that now in Golden Temple, this keeps on going. It has never stopped. 24-7, 365, 
Langar goes on. And visiting the Langar at the Golden Temple inspired the Singh family to put their faith into action. That's where our inspiration came that, you know, the spirit doesn't need to be in churches or gurdwaras or temples. Uh, it needs to be on the streets where the need is. So we came up with the idea at that time that we're going to do something. And that inspiration was to buy a food truck and just go to Skid Row, just go to the homeless encampments and serve them where they are. The family then created an organization called Khalsa Peace Corps, under which the Share a Meal program operates. Singh says Khalsa, which means pure, refers to a group of Sikh warriors who fought the Mongol Empire in India so that they could continue to practice their own faith and not be forced to convert. He says today many Sikhs wear a small sword, or kirpan, in reference to the spiritual warriors of the Khalsa. But Singh says he thinks of the Khalsa as a humanitarian force, and he often wonders if other Sikhs are following in their footsteps to fight social injustices. I used to tell them, or I used to question them, where is your real sword and what is your real cause? Why you keep on wearing as symbolic swords? And I mean, I used to <laughs> give them a little bad time. Is it for cutting apples now? Or I mean, what is the purpose that you are serving these days? Even though Singh had the Khalsa tradition to draw upon, he had no such model when it came to running a food truck, much less one meant to serve thousands of people. He says he and Jackie had no experience. <laughs> Jackie even did the first time 25 meal thing. She was, I mean, she was up awake. She had never cooked for more than a larger family of seven people or eight people, and that was it or on a Thanksgiving, maybe 12 people. So even that was a challenge to her. So now when we started it, we were very naive. So naive that eventually they realized the trailer they originally bought to transport the food wasn't exactly ideal for driving around city streets. Now they have two food trucks out of which they serve burritos. Singh says the burritos contain rice, beans, veggies, and traditional Indian curries. Plus, they store and travel well, and they can be kept vegetarian, as langar meals traditionally are. It was perfect langar-style food. Caitlin Yoshiko Kandil, the reporter who wrote about the Sings, got a chance to see how the thousands of burritos are put together. Jackie showed me this big industrial-sized fridge that they have, and she had some bins of masala paste that she had prepared in advance. And the students were making rice and beans and vegetables that they would eventually load onto the food truck um, and take down to the site where they're going to distribute it. Um, and Ravi was telling me that all the recipes are traditional Indian recipes that they learned from women at their gurdwara who had been making langar food in the community. And she describes the burritos themselves. It was a tortilla and it was filled with white rice, beans, vegetables, and the curry paste that Jackie makes from scratch. Um, and they have mild and spicy versions to make sure that it appeals to everyone. Um, and I took the mild one. And it was really good. Not only have the Sings learned how to make a tasty meal with traditional flavors, but they've also expanded the Share a Meal program over the last 10 years. The two trucks that they have go to several sites around the city, um, including Skid Row, Hollywood, Venice Beach. Um, and they typically feed up to 200 people per night. 
Um, and the volunteers that I talked to said that usually they see regulars when they go out at night. These are people that they see every single week who are waiting for them um, to come by. And, and those regulars, they've gotten to know really well and they've developed a relationship with them. Yoshiko Kandil says those connections are at the heart of the Singh's model. So Ravi likes to talk about compassion a lot. He talks about how this work is cultivating compassion in all of us. And I think he believes that in doing this work, we're developing the kindness and compassion in ourselves. And, and that's really important to him. She says tons of people want to volunteer with the organization. And a chapter has even been established at the University of Southern California. But what's interesting is most of the volunteers aren't sick. And Singh says having a share a meal be interfaith was intentional, hearkening back to the original Lungar tradition of serving people of all faiths and backgrounds. I think we are blessed. If you come any night, you will see 99% of them are all faiths, all races, all cultures, all ethnicities, and maybe less than 1% are Sikhs in there. So, I mean, that's my dream come true right there, which is what we wanted. Singh is overwhelmed by the number of people who want to help, from churches to synagogues to mosques. There's so many volunteers, I can open up more routes, but there's limitation on the money at this point. The volunteers have been like 165, 40. It's such a big crowd to manage. He says what's invaluable is the help being given to the community and the spiritual growth volunteers experience firsthand. When I talk to our volunteers, what my favorite thing to mention to them is that you receive more than what you give. When you go out there, you're basically giving them $2.50 worth of burrito. And what I tell them is to make a human connection there. And that gives you a feeling that I, I did some good deed. But in reality, what's happening is your spiritual journey has started. You have started to talk to your soul. Oh, why did I feel that way? Why did I, why do I like it? The reality of it is you are walking away with an invaluable journey that you are going to take within yourself that no amount of money can place a value on it. So in this process, we all come together. It doesn't matter what faith you are from. And every faith talks about service. I don't know any faith that doesn't talk about serving and feeding, helping the others. So that's what I tell them, no matter what faith you're coming from, in service, we come together. That was Ravinder Ravi Singh, head of the Share a Meal program under the Khalsa Peace Corps, and journalist Caitlin Yoshiko Kandil. That's all for this week's episode. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices, an independent nonprofit that is listener-supported. To learn more about us, explore our archives, and subscribe to our podcast, visit interfaithradio.org. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. A special thanks to producers Melissa Fato and Stephanie Lecce, and to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. Wherever you are, we hope you are safe and connected. I'm host and executive producer Umbreen Khan. See you next week.